0: According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me in Matthew 19, if you would. We have parallel text in Mark 10 and Luke 18. I believe, uh, and we'll do a little bit of bouncing back and forth, but I think the predominant amount of our time will be in Matthew Chapter 19, we're also going to be bouncing into uh, the book of Acts uh, at one point here as well. So uh, just crack your knuckles if you need to, limber up your fingers a little bit, get ready for some uh, for some page flipping here this morning. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer so we have the opportunity to humble ourselves under the authority of teaching. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing we have to assemble together. And Father, I just want to thank you for the grace that makes it possible, the grace that saves us, the grace that sustains us, the grace that provides for us each and every day, the grace that brought us here this morning, Father, that you allowed us the privilege to assemble together. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to study to show ourselves approved. We ask for your blessings on this time of study. Set aside distractions, hedge us about and protect us, Father, from any that would want to come in here and stop our teaching or bring us to harm in any way father uh, open the eyes of our understanding father we're uh we're approaching a passage that maybe we know uh or maybe we think we know maybe we're too familiar with it father maybe we're going to take a look at a passage with fresh eyes and see something we've never seen before so uh, father bless our time in your word today and i thank you in christ's name amen you know there's probably going to come a day that i'm just going to open in prayer and pray for an hour and It'll go from an opening prayer to a message to a closing prayer, and then we'll just go home. Never done that yet, but if the thoughts hit me, that we could just pray through an entire class at some point. All righty. Matthew chapter 19, episode 34. In the last Judean and Perean ministry of Jesus, we have the rich young ruler from Matthew 16. That's a fairly lengthy story. And all three of the records are fairly close. Matthew 19 verses 16 through 30, you got 15 verses worth of material there. Mark 10 verses 17 through 31, again 15 verses worth of material. Luke 18 verses 18 through 30, that's the shortest of them, um, at only 13 verses in length. There uh, are some details though that can be gleaned out of each of these gospel records, uh, not the least of which is the fact that the only gospel that calls him a ruler is uh is Luke is that the shortest one it's only 13 verses long and we don't have a lot that we glean out of that that's unique to uh Luke but the fact that we call him something other than just the rich young guy uh we call him the rich young ruler we owe to the uh to the Luke account so let's take a look at it and I'll read through uh, well let's do that let's read the shortest one first Luke uh 18 we've had a little bit of a break out of Luke for an episode, I believe, we had, uh, well, no, we had the childlike faith in uh, in uh, bringing the children. Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. This context is going to be important, really, to understanding the message that's being delivered today, uh, where in verse 17 it says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And so he makes that statement and then Boom, here we go. Here comes the illustration. Uh, a ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You do not know the commandments. Or you know the commandments, I'm sorry. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I've kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, Well, one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. All right. That gives you the gist of the story. It's the shortest of the accounts from, uh, just like I say, just 13 verses from uh, 18 down through uh, verse 27. I'm going to stop the reading there. I realize the screen says through verse 30, um, Peter's complained and the things that happened after that, 28 through 30, I think we will separate that out and include that in a different episode. So don't uh, don't get worked up over that. But as it is, there's plenty to get worked up about. Okay, uh, If you were listening, as we were just reading that, um, it might appear to be that if you give away all your money, give away everything you have, you can earn your way into heaven. That's not what this passage is talking about, although Jesus does use the term. Uh, he has a method of communication that we want to glean from we want to learn from we want to observe because I think it's critical I think it's very important uh, it, it may even become a methodology that you and I have occasion to adopt and to uh, make use of if in fact God puts us into this position uh, but there's there's really some difficulties with this text in a lot of ways that I think uh, folks don't understand uh, there's so much more that goes into this than just simply um, rich people have a hard time getting saved All right? Is that what you're walking away with? Rich people have a hard time getting saved. Well, let me tell you, everybody has a hard time getting saved. Rich people, poor people, tall people, short people, uh, ugly people. I mean, just pick a category. Human beings can't get saved if they're trying to do it in their own terms. If they're trying to do it with their own expectations or with what it is they think they can bring to the table. All they can bring to the table is their lost and dying soul. And we've got to recognize that understand what are the hang-ups with folks that are trying to earn and deserve their way there. This man thought he had it made. He felt that he had, like Paul, there's so many similarities between this guy and Paul. You know, as to the righteousness found in the law, blameless. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was the shining star of everything legalism could want. And yet legalism doesn't measure up. And so we really have a lot of work to do in this episode. I don't know how many Wednesdays it's going to take us to do this, but let's uh, let's get a look at it. Now, context. I always try to use point one in every one of these Life of Christ outlines to establish the context, to frame the episode. Right on the heels of Jesus' message regarding childlike faith, the perfect illustration for the opposite, (laughs) the anti-childlike faith approach, the opposite of childlike faith. Right on the heels of Jesus' message regarding childlike faith, the perfect illustration for the opposite came running right up to him. Okay, the the episode in Mark, the details we glean out of Mark is interesting. In Mark ten, we're told that uh, Jesus was basically packed and ready to leave town, and uh, as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him, and it's not a, it's not a different context at all, but we do have the details that. The servant Mark uh, spotlights for us here. Uh, Again, he says in verse, uh, this is right after permit the children to come to me, do not hinder them for uh, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. The only way to enter into the kingdom is by faith. We would say in our vocabulary, the only way to receive eternal life, the only way to get saved, the only way to pass out of darkness into light or from death into life, the only answer is faith. And uh, specifically here, a childlike faith. And so he took them in his arms, began blessing them, laying hands on them. And then, before he can leave town, he's packed, he's ready, the whatever the baggage train is loaded and, and whatever else. They're ready to set out on, on the journey. And a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And again, the question, why do you call me good? So uh, this is the perfect illustration. He just taught them. It takes childlike faith. And then here comes the rich young ruler. Okay, the context is vital the circumstances are, are interesting that it comes right on the heels and we see this repeatedly in a lot of the episodes a lot of the episodes and you might find the same thing too in terms of your own testing in terms of your own application and encounters with angelic conflict and other things what an amazing set of coincidence when uh, uh, God puts testing in your life that just so happens to match up with a message that came from this pulpit just the week before, right? Or a conversation or a prayer or something that happened in your own devotions or something that happened at a prayer meeting. And oh my goodness, we were just talking about this. and the Bible, God was just teaching us about this. And lo and behold, I'm being tested in that realm. Well, what do you know? And man, lucky for us that we just happened to accidentally... See, this is why, you know, it's called Calvinist luck. Alright? <laughs> this is the sovereignty of God taking us where we need to be, teaching us what we need to have. Alright? Absolutely teaching us what we need to have. And I appreciate that. Alright. All three, point two then. All three synoptic gospels call him rich. Matthew calls him a young man. And Luke calls him a ruler. So what do we call him? We call him the rich young ruler. That's right. All three synoptic gospels call him rich. Matthew 19:22, Mark 10:22, Luke 18:23. So there's the triple testimony. The guy had wealth. He had property, which in the ancient world was wealth. He had um, assets available, liquid and otherwise. All right. So we could just call this the parable of the rich guy. Okay. Uh, It's not even a parable. It's a true story. Um, And again, the specific testimony is it is easier for uh, a camel to go through the eye of the needle. There's some geography and history there we'll look at. But there's some... um, It's easier for that camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So in this instance, this is a story about a rich guy and the difficulty he has... With salvation. But it's bigger than that. And we're going to take the time to walk you through it. Verse by verse. uh, Application by application. And we should not just call this the rich guy. Having trouble getting saved. But Matthew does call him a young man in Matthew 19.22. So we can say he's the young rich guy. And then Luke calls him a ruler. So we call him the rich young ruler. I don't have any problem with that. Uh, the archon, A-R-C-H-O-W-N, archon, uh, number 758 is used 37 times in the Greek New Testament. It's uh, it's kind of an interesting term because it's really a, a participle from a verb, but it, it has its own common use often enough that we kind of think of it as a, a noun all on its own and a term all on its own. Um, but the idea of being first, the idea of being preeminent, the idea of ruling, the idea of... of um, of that. And and really, oftentimes this verb gets attached or this part of the gets attached to another term. So we know what kind of ruler he is. Uh, very frequently Christ encountered and it's kind of a tradition and that's what this guy is too, uh, but Christ would encounter, for example, a synagogue official. Uh, like Jairus or someone, uh, the synagogue official whose daughter was sick or anything like that. And you would have this term attached to another term and that told you what he was a ruler of. Okay? Uh, He was a ruler of a synagogue. and We call him a synagogue official or he was a ruler of the Jews. Nicodemus in John chapter 3 was the ruler of the Jews, we're told. And uh, as he was a Pharisee there. And there's other terms. and, And when we don't have the noun attached to it, then you're just kind of left not knowing. Well, what kind of ruler is he? You know, is he a synagogue ruler is he a pharisee is he a ruler of the jews is he a we don't know okay scripture doesn't tell us and really luke is the only gospel record that calls him an archon but he's an archon so we uh we just kind of leave it uncertain and uh recognize we won't have the total answer on that maybe until we get to heaven at which point the father will say does it really matter (laughs) all right i got all these questions and by the time i'm glorified i think the lord will just say you know Chill out about some of that curiosity you have there. All right. Uh, You know, you you might even look at it and say, well, maybe he was a fallen angel, you know, because you have rulers in the 40s, principalities and powers, right? No, you just kind of relax and say, no, he's not that kind of a ruler. And uh, we can relax about certain things. It is noteworthy, though. There's some unique circumstances here. What does this guy do? Let's spend our time in Matthew because there are some divergent um, expressions in Matthew. Mark and Luke are almost identical. Mark is longer, but where Luke covers Mark's material, it's it's pretty well identical word for word. Matthew uh, is, is actually, I think, the longest of all in word count and has some unique um, phraseology. And so let's spotlight that. I think uh, uh, Matthew was the only eyewitness, by the way. Matthew was here when the event took place. Mark and Luke we're researching it and, and writing years later. So it says uh, in Matthew nineteen twenty two. 22. Um, well, let me back up a little bit. Verse 16. Someone uh, came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? That I may obtain, obtain eternal life. It's, that's one of the differences. Mark and Luke both speak of inheritance. Matthew uses the term to obtain. And he's not called a good teacher, what thing shall I do? But teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said, why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. All right. Now, we're going to work this out. We're going to be okay with this. Once we understand what's happening, we're going to be okay with this. Otherwise, we're going to sit here and vibrate until 11 o'clock. And then we'll go to lunch, and we'll still be vibrating because we'll be all mad at Jesus for being such a pathetic evangelist. Okay, <laughs> you know, are you gonna are you gonna tell anybody about eternal life and say, keep the Ten Commandments and, and you get eternal life? And even just keep the five, the second half of the Ten Commandments, just the those last five, the external ones. Okay, keep the obvious ones, and you're good, And you're all right, just be a good person. No. You're not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. Nobody's going to do that. Jesus isn't doing that. It might appear that way. And until we understand what's really going on, um, let's, uh, well, let's look at it. Because I think once you recognize what's going on, then all of a sudden, okay, oh, wait a minute. This is what he's doing. And it's brilliant. So, rich young ruler. And what I think is interesting, third point I'm going to give you out of this. Many uh, many friends and enemies refer to Jesus as a teacher, refer to him as rabbi, and you can do your searches and find the, the uh, vocabulary uses for didaskalos, for teacher, or rabbi, for rabbi. Um, but this man alone, this is the only time in Scripture anyone ever called him good. And it's really, it's an unusual term. They, uh, and the Jews would never think of anyone as good, even if, uh, even if they were a good person, or consider that they themselves were a good person. They might view themselves as a righteous person. Uh, they might view themselves as in conformity to God's standard of righteousness. God is righteous, so we can line up with his righteousness. But they would never refer to anyone as good intrinsically, because only God is good. In, in their way of thinking and from an old testament standpoint and, and so forth. But this man alone calls him Agathos, calls him good. Okay? The Greek term is agathos. A G A T H O S. It's number eighteen in the strongest concordance. Has a hundred and two uses throughout the New Testament, so you can have some fun with that. Track it down. Okay. Uh go you know find the Septuagint uses and things of that nature. Uh it's not good in the sense of uh morally or um the the biggest problem we have with goodness is that there's different flavors of goodness and and in English we just kind of have the same general term right good as opposed to bad or good as opposed to wicked or immoral and things of that nature but agathos is pure uh intrinsic wholesome goodness the nature that is the essence of god himself okay And uh, it's this kind of goodness, and only God has this kind of goodness. We can align with his righteousness, but we don't have this goodness within ourselves, if that makes any sense. We produce, uh, as the Holy Spirit indwells us and fills us, we can produce the fruit of the Spirit that approaches this kind of goodness, but that's only because he's producing that in us. We don't have that goodness ourselves. Anyway, there's a there's a whole lot there and I'm not gonna focus on it. I'm not really gonna dwell on it. If you ever know you ever know anybody named Agatha, that's where this name comes from, right? I've you know probably read an Agatha Christie novel or something in the past. But I have never known personally any any Agathas in my life. But that's the that's the aspect here. He calls him good. And the uh the idea that a lot of commentators pick up on this and pick up on the Savior's response when he says why are you calling me that? You know, you understand that he says if if there's no one good except God alone and you're calling me good, what are you saying? Are you calling me God? Are you testifying to my deity? Are you in fact acknowledging as several other disciples did on occasion, my Lord and my God? Okay? This could be a tremendous opportunity if, in fact, this man is on active positive volition that's humble under authority that has properly identified uh, all of the, the biblical application of the coming Messiah. If he's coming in faith, then calling him good teacher is very appropriate if he has the capacity to understand what he's saying. And in the Lord's response here, all three Gospels give the record that Jesus questions him on Why are you calling me this? Why are you saying this? All right. And it becomes very clear that this man is not approaching on a divine viewpoint basis he's not approaching on a faith basis he is not um utilizing the terminology in a manner compatible with the biblical expression see and we need to learn from that we absolutely need to learn from that if we don't then we can uh we can get tripped up in in our witnessing in our fellowship in different things you know you can you can talk to Mormons and they'll use terms and expressions, and it might seem to be compatible with what we use, but they don't mean the same thing. Talk to a Roman Catholic, and they can use the word grace, and uh, you think, well, hey, we got a common ground here. Yeah, grace is great. Let's talk about grace. They're not using it the way we're using it. Their idea of grace is something you can earn. How does that happen? The idea of merit, that I can earn the merits of... Of, uh, of Christ, if I show the right devotion to Mary, right, and if I venerate Mary, then Mary will attribute the merits of, of of the grace of Jesus to my to my account, and so I've got to work for all this grace. Okay, if you understand how the Catholics are approaching grace, then you realize: wait a minute, <laughs> you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Okay, I mean this is ultimately the the princess bride moment of when you when it dawns on you that it's part of the satanic deception they use the same words we do but don't fall for it understand what it means all right now let's break down these parallel statements first of all so point 4 we're just going to line them up side by side point 4 then study on the parallel statements Sub point A. Let's just put them up side by side and look at them to see, uh, you know, are there there discrepancies? Are these different? They're not different amongst themselves, but they are different from another story. And we're going to have to highlight that if if we're going to understand this. Um, The difference being is what is modified by good, okay? Is it good teacher or good thing? Um, In the Matthew record, the statement reads, teacher. What good thing shall I do? Whereas in the Mark and the Luke record, he addresses Jesus as good teacher. What shall I do? You see the difference? Okay. And then the the response that when Jesus answers back, the response is modified accordingly. So in Matthew, when he answers back, he says, why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Um, in Mark and Luke, he asks, why are you calling me good? Okay, so the Jesus answer back matches how it's phrased and how it's expressed, both in Matthew and in uh, the Mark and Luke account. Again, we don't view this as a discrepancy. We don't view this as an issue or uh, you know a, a fatal error in, in hermeneutics or, or the inerrancy of Scripture or anything like that. Um, We we encounter this repeatedly in our harmonization of the Gospels and recognizing the distinctions in what gets recorded in Matthew's record, Mark's record, Luke's record, and John's record, and so forth. So it's not contradictory in any respect. I think um, verbatim, if uh, if someone had a a portable MP3 recorder on hand when Jesus was speaking, uh, which one of these was he likely to have been saying? I think chances are neither because they were probably speaking in Aramaic <laughs> Okay, as far as it goes. And these texts were all written in, in Greek. So we can uh, relax a little bit on some of that. Okay. <laughs> but the point being, the questions are fundamentally equivalent as far as that goes. The, the ruler here is asking a question. He wants to do something. He wants to do something we find that his motivation is what must he do. Okay? And it's it's quite interesting because he views himself he's been doing stuff for years. He's been doing stuff since his childhood. But he still feels there's more to do. He's not there yet. And that's interesting. Okay? Uh, and we're going to contrast this with a Philippian jailer. And we're going to go to Acts because uh, it's so identical, it's inescapable. You know, what must I do to be saved? Okay. And in that chapter, Paul and Silas have a great gospel response. Different from what Jesus, it's a different approach from what Jesus is doing here in this chapter. And so I think if we can put those two, put this episode side by side with the Philippian jailer episode, we are really going to do ourselves some huge favors in understanding what God expects of us in our own ministries, evangelism and everything else. But the man is wrapped up in what he shall do, shall do. And um, I think it's interesting because he's been doing stuff for years and years. And yet he realizes that it's not enough. What else is there? Why why is he so dissatisfied with what he's been doing? Why doesn't he just pat himself on the back and say, "Oh, yeah, I'm all right. I've been doing it. I'm cool." Why, why does he Why is he coming to Jesus here to say, "Am I missing something? Is there something else?" All right. The purpose for what he's doing, that I may obtain eternal life. That's Matthew's record. Is to obtain. In Mark and Luke, the term is inherit that I would inherit eternal life. Again, there's not a discrepancy there or a contradiction. In fact, they're very complementary. We would expect Matthew writing to a Jewish audience. The Gospel of Matthew is largely Jewish and and Hebraic in its thinking and its approach. uh, would not have to stipulate the idea of inheritance. That would be automatic. That would be built into any Jewish way of thinking. Whereas Mark and Luke writing more to Gentile audiences in in a more of a Gentile mindset, uh, feel the necessity to actually uh, incorporate the terminology in the expression. Either way, it's, a, it's an equivalent statement, whether you obtain it or whether you inherit it, uh, whether you receive it, for example, <coughs> or to, uh, to, to obtain, to receive eternal life. Or we might even uh, bring our own vocabulary into it. How about if we just say, get saved, like the jailer did. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to get saved? All right. And uh, (coughs) it's a good way to think of it from our perspective, from our standpoint and where we are. Uh, We are not as kingdom minded as they were being Jewish uh, folks in an Old Testament context. Um, We can stress kingdom in our own ministry. Paul does in the book of Acts and elsewhere. But our primary focus is on eternal salvation, not kingship. And that's, um, that's a message for a different day nevertheless we have no problem equating the expressions that I may obtain eternal life that I may inherit eternal life he is asking a question he wants to do something and his objective is to receive eternal life okay and you think woohoo man i I, I love this I would love every day wouldn't it be great if every day someone came up to me and said what must I do to be saved right I, I'm sure that happens to you all the time you know Everywhere you go, every restaurant, every grocery store, they're just lined up for blocks saying, will you tell me how to receive eternal life? Okay. Well, when that happens, then you've got to be ready. But you've got to be ready when it, ha- when it truly happens and when it's not happening under false pretenses or when it's being asked but they don't want the real answer. Okay. And in particular, if they are absolutely consumed with themselves, and they're simply asking for you to validate what a great job they're doing, okay, then it may not be your assignment to evangelize. I'll give you a moment to pick your jaw up off the floor. Okay? Jaws just dropped. What do you mean? it may not be my assignment to evangelize. That's right. It may not be the right time. It may not be the right setting. You may not be the right instrument. And it may not be the time to speak because there is a time to speak and a time to remain silent. We're going to highlight this. I believe uh, Paul and Silas in in the Philippian, Philippian prison, I think they were correct. It was the time to speak. They spoke. The man got saved. His household got saved. It was a powerful revival there in Philippi on that occasion. That's not what's happening on this occasion. And our Savior had the discernment that we need to have to understand what's happening when folks are approaching us. All right. Relate this, of course, over to Acts 16. 30, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Acts 1630. And, and we'll turn there shortly. We'll have to turn there right now. We'll be there under point five, I think, to a more developed extent. But understand, I mean, are are these or are these not functionally equivalent questions? These are the same questions. Um, <laughs> but you understand background just colors everything. Okay. You know, uh, even, even in uh, in, in seemingly um, simple realms, questions can be w- miles apart, different based on where uh, <laughs> where people are are coming from. Right? And, and I'm going to tell this wrong. This is horrible. Uh, somebody told me this joke a week ago, and or I don't know, man. I'm going to get this wrong. Little kid that came up and asked his dad, you know, where he came from, and Anyway, the dad was shocked and uncomfortable and figured that it was, you know, the proper time to spell out the birds and the bees and the facts of life and whatever. And so he just, uh, he he went into this long deal about men and women and pregnancy and, you know, just laid everything on out for the son. And and then, uh, (laughs) I don't remember the punchline, they, the that's not what the kid was really had in mind. You know, he he wanted to know, you know, what state was I born in, or you know, what you know, <laughs> you know, what what city did we grow up in, or something like that. You know. Um, anyway, uh, and so the dad was all embarrassed because you know he just went through all that anguish unnecessarily. Okay. Um, and so I just totally mistold the joke. That's all right. You you got the gist of it. Okay. But that's that's the illustration, though, for what this passage is dealing a question like, what must I do to be saved? Uh, Can be taken in any number of different ways. And you got to recognize what is the approach? What is the mindset? What is the background? What is the um, attitude? Because that's going to determine what the answer is. We taught this in in, uh, soteriology in our basic doctrinal studies. The question, what must I do to be saved, has two answers depending upon what you mean by do. Okay, or to be. If what you're asking is what is to earn or deserve salvation, what must I do to earn my salvation? The answer is nothing. Absolutely nothing whatsoever. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. You're not qualified. I'm not qualified. So the answer is absolutely nothing at all. But if when you say to be saved, you mean what must I do to, by grace, receive the offer that is freely presented in the in the grace gift of eternal life? Well, then the answer isn't nothing. The answer is believe. Okay? And so you've got two answers to that question. What must I do to be saved? Nothing. Nothing at all. If the idea is... I'm trying to earn it. I'm trying to work for it. I'm trying to deserve it. I'm trying to convince God that I'm worthy of of being in heaven. What must I do to to be saved? Nothing. You can't do a thing. You can't even start to do a thing. You can't cooperate. You can't even do 1% and let God do the other 99%. Nothing. But if the approach is one on faith and grace and I can't earn it, I can't deserve it, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, both you and your household. Okay? So, they're widely different answers, and it depends upon the the uh, attitude or the, the thinking behind why the question is being asked. See? And this is where the carnal mind that's not humble at the point of God consciousness, that's not positive at the point of gospel hearing, the carnal mind, the darkened mind, rebels at the thought of grace. Rebels as foolish, the thought of, Faith. It's just stupid. It doesn't make any sense. It's too simple. It's too easy. It's a waste of time. What do you mean? Just believe that's it? There's got to be something more than that? Are you kidding me? That's dumb. And the reason why is because they think they've got some good things going for them. They've got some abilities. They've got some strength. They've got some uh, merit. They They can work hard for this. They can keep a law. They can... They can earn something. They're better than other people. And because they're better than other people, you know, you give them a task. You know, they've got to climb the, the highest mountain on every continent on earth. Yeah, I can do that. All right? And, and they, they, they'll train for it. They'll, they'll go to the ends of the earth. Like the Pharisees will go to the ends of the earth to make one disciple. And they make them twice as much a son of hell as, as they are, see. Well... You'll see what I mean here in a moment. But the um, I've encountered it. I know you have too. I've encountered people saying, that's too easy. That can't be That can't be right. There's got to be more to it than that. And when they don't like the easiness about it is the fact that that means anyone can have it. And there's folks they don't want to see have it. <laughs> there's folks that they feel aren't good enough to have it. They're better than those folks. And that's just satanic pride is all that is. Okay? Now, This is why I want to take the time to go through this. Because, point five now. Jesus' ministry in this episode is extraordinary for its non-evangelistic communication. For its non-evangelistic communication. You can even think of it as anti-evangelism. Okay? I don't know if there's an antonym for euangelizo. Let me think. You is the prefix that means good or well, and angelizo is to announce. And so, if you're announcing good news, you are a youngalistas. You are a good news teller, a bad news teller, cacos ungalistas, I don't know, making some up. Um, but the point being, Jesus has no good news for this man, <laughs> right? He says keep the law, right? And then when he says, "Well, I think I'm, I think I'm doing it." Are you sure? What about this point here? Oh. See, and there's where you're stuck. No matter how righteous you are, there's always going to be something that's going to knock you out of the picture. Something's going to... No matter what. Everybody. Have you kept... uh, You know, is there a Ten Commandment that you've kept 100% perfectly your entire life? Okay? I'm not talking about all Ten Commandments. Just find one. That you've kept all your life, all of your entire life, every single day, okay? Mentally as well as overtly. Don't even tell me that, oh, well, I kept this one. I've never murdered anybody, okay? Mentally as well as overtly. Okay, well, all right, I've, I've murdered half of Austin on 183, you know? So... If you think that you're going to earn salvation, there's always going to be something. For this guy, it was money. For somebody else, it could have been something different. Okay? For some, somebody else, it might have been uh, immorality. It might have been women. It might have been alcohol. Maybe it was, you know, whatever it is. I'm sorry? The other night? Oh, yeah, yeah, the other nine. There you go. That's right. Just pick a commandment. You're going to find something. So what's Jesus doing here? He's not communicating a gospel. He's actually communicating bad news. Do um, you remember the uh, Evantel bad news, good news approach? You know, sometimes you got to take the time to make the bad news clear. Sometimes if if the bad news isn't understood, then where's the frame of reference to understand or appreciate or accept or even think the good news is necessary at all? And when I think what Jesus is doing here, he's this man doesn't know the bad news yet. He needs to he needs to understand the bad news. And when he goes away, sad, grieving, weeping more than just sad, he's grieved. When he goes away, grieved. This is the first day that he started to recognize the bad news. And maybe down the road, someone else will come along. This is a seed being planted, a seed being sown. This man isn't ready for the harvest yet. And so, uh, it's really, it's an interesting approach. It's bad news. I've, I've used this in funeral services. I've got good news in every funeral I preach. But if you don't have Christ, it's bad news. I don't have any encouragement for you. I have no encouragement for you at all. Your loved one's dead. I might not be so brutal, but that's what I try to say. You know what? Your loved one's dead. They're a rotting corpse in a box and they're going to go under the dirt. How sad is that? If you don't have Christ, you don't understand eternal life, you don't have the blessed hope, you're not looking forward to the resurrection glory, if all you have is this life, then it's done. And there's no good news that's there for your comfort and your encouragement. You have to grieve as those who have no hope. But we grieve not as those who have no hope. And we have the blessed hope that encourages one another. And so, in the funeral messages that I preach, um, that's the kind of thing that that, uh, I try to get across. All right. Weddings are more fun than funerals, and... uh, we're doing what we can to get those weddings back up here for <laughs> between now and the end of the year. That's outstanding. All right. So what's he doing? Well, let's let's look over to Philippians or Acts chapter 16 and the Philippian jailer, because Paul and Silas. So subpoint A. Subpoint A then, and we get this out of Acts 16. Paul and Silas responded to the Philippian jailer evangelistically. Paul and Silas responded to the Philippian jailer evangelistically. Acts 16.31. After he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. So they respond evangelistically. He has a question They have the good news. They communicate that good news. But Jesus responded to the rich young ruler legalistically. Not evangelistically. He's not giving them a gospel. He's giving them more law. Go keep the commandments. Don't murder. Don't steal. He responds to the rich young ruler legalistically. You say, well, I don't like that. Well, wait a minute. Maybe... Maybe this is smart. Maybe this is something we can imitate, okay? And we actually had a concept in our Timothy series not too long ago, where we saw a verse that at first we didn't like. Law is good. What do you mean law is good? I hate the law. I'm under I'm not under law, I'm under grace. Right? We rejoice that we're church age saints. I love grace. Hallelujah, we're not under law, we're under grace. Man, and yes, we love that, we worship that, we thrive in that. You know, we sing, we don't sing amazing law, we sing amazing grace, okay? But, is there still a venue in which we can make use of law? Yes. Law is good if one uses it lawfully. If one uses it lawfully. Or legalistically. Okay? The problem is grace gets perverted when you try to apply grace legalistically. And law gets perverted when you try to apply law in grace. Can't do it. But can you use law legalistically? Lawfully? You bet. That's what this text is saying here. Realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly, for sinners, for unholy and profane. For those who kill their fathers and mothers. For murderers, immoral men. Those are the fornicators. Homosexuals, kidnappers, liars, perjurers. And, just in case we didn't hit your list, you too. (laughs) Whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Law is wonderful if we use it lawfully. And by that, condemning. The law justifies nobody. The law can only condemn. So use it. Use it lawfully when appropriate. In other words, communicate the bad news. They may not be ready for the good news yet. So communicate the bad news. It's the reason why we have an Old Testament before we get the New Testament, right? <laughs> why the law then? What well, was a tutor was to lead us to Christ. Why did law precede grace? And the idea that we can't use law lawfully... In a condemning, condemning way. Now, I'll describe what I mean by condemning. We, we, we want to biblically condemn without personally you know, condemning and, and offending a person and so forth. But we want to be able to biblically condemn lawfully. Biblically condemn lawfully. Okay? And there's a, there's a grace way to do that. There's, a, there's a, a lawful way to do that. It's just being faithful to the text. Absolutely faithful to the text. Law is good if one uses it lawfully. I believe this is what Christ is doing here in this episode. He says, well, what does the law say? And the rich young ruler says, you know the law. So, um, teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, need expressions. Like what we have and swallowed up by... Life, swallowed up by Zoe. Um, If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Just keep the commandments. You can earn your way into heaven. Now, is that true? Is Jesus lying to the guy? No, he's not. We understand that. Jesus doesn't sin. Although not every lie is a sin, as Rahab the harlot illustrates for it, but what is he doing here? He's isn't is what the guy expects. Yeah, I can I can keep the commandments. I can earn my way to heaven. Jesus, all right, have fun, <laughs> go do that, keep the commandments, and uh, and then he says, well, which ones? Right, just like the Pharisee. Well, who's my neighbor? You know, what's the fine print here? I want to make sure I've got a handle on this. And Jesus said, "Well, thou shalt not murder, shalt not commit adultery, shalt not steal, shalt not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself." It's a pretty good list. It's a sample. It's not all ten commandments, but it's a good list of them there. And uh, isn't that interesting? Why? Why didn't he list all six hundred and twelve commandments? Why did he just leave it with these, you know, five or six here? You know, well, any. Think about it, any person you know that's trying to work their way into heaven, uh, they're they're working on a diminished list themselves. <laughs> They've got a pretty finite criteria based on typically the things they do well. And they're, uh, you know, the things they struggle with, they, that, that doesn't tend to make their list of, of human good achievements. Um, the, and the young man said, that's the only use of young man. Mark and Luke don't tell us anything about his age. But thanks to Matthew, we can call him the rich young ruler. There he is. The young man said to him, all these things I've kept. What am I still lacking? Oh, man, there's a... That's a whole month of Sundays right uh, preaching right there. What am I still lacking? Right? If your life is based upon what you've earned and deserved and how you've measured up and how you're... You're never going to have any kind of eternal satisfaction. There's always going to be, well, could I be doing more? Am I? What am I doing wrong? Is there something else? Am I missing something? What else am I still lacking? Okay, and think about it, folks that you know that are involved in churchianity instead of Christianity, you know, artificial religions and all this other kind of stuff, and and they know in their soul that something's missing. What am I lacking? What am I missing here? What what's the Christian life supposed to be like anyway? What am I still lacking? And Jesus said to him, and this is the the glory here, and I you know he's a He's not tapping into omniscience here. This is omnipotent. this is uh, the prophetic office. I think the, the father tipped him off to this a day ahead of time. Said, you know, tomorrow as you're getting ready to leave town, this guy's going to come up to you. Tipped him off into all of that. So one last thing here. If you wish to be complete, teleos, the whole concept of teleology or completion or perfection, which for church age saints comes about through local church activities. If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. Now, that's remarkable right there, because uh, which one of the Ten Commandments is that? (laughs) Right? Where in the Old Testament do you find give away all your stuff? It almost kind of seems like Jesus just made this up. Right? Well, (laughs) you could say this is is, uh, thou shalt not covet on steroids, right? Because this is... Not only are you not coveting what you don't have, you're just giving it all away so you don't have anything anyway. That's the ultimate not coveting um, hmm. and see what he does here he's picking the item the 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 biggest item, the biggest stumbling block, the biggest issue of pride, the biggest thing he can't let go of, and we all have something we usually have you know about a hundred things i can I can tell you hundred and fifty five of my my different weaknesses and flaws all right, but Jesus picked the biggest one that this guy had. And just dropped it on him. Just dropped it on him. And oh my goodness. Can't do that. So when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving. Grieving. You know, what kind of responses have you had to the gospel? Sometimes you make people mad. Sometimes you upset people. And this isn't even a gospel he's given them. Uh, You know, people going away mad might be a good thing. It might be a great thing. If in the will of God, you've stood for the truth. All right. So Paul and Silas responded to the Philippian jailer evangelistically, but Jesus responded to the rich young ruler legalistically. Secondly, point B, the jailer responded with faith, but the rich young ruler responded with sorrow. The jailer responded with faith, but the rich and ruler responded with sorrow. Again, the, the man got saved. Acts 16.34. Not only him, but his whole household. I should keep my... Put a bookmark in here or something. I've got Sunday's bulletin. I'll stick that in there. All right. And so... Um, he took them uh, that very hour of the night washed their wounds. Immediately he was baptized, he and his household, and he brought them into his house and set food before them. And, you know, did he get saved because he baptized, got baptized? Did he get saved because he washed their wounds? Did he get baptized because he took them home with them? Uh, no. He rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Every member of that household placed their faith in Christ. And that's the basis for salvation. So the jailer responded with faith, but the rich young ruler responded with sorrow. And again, you got verses 22, 22, and 23 in your corresponding Matthew, Mark, and Luke chapters. Grieved. Sorrowful. You know, good news isn't good news for someone that's not ready for it, for someone that hates it. The aroma of life to life is beautiful, but the aroma of death to death is horrible. And it's the same aroma. We saw that in in 2 Corinthians. All right. And why the different response? Why the different uh, outcome? Well, what was the the input, right? We talk about garbage in, garbage out in, in the computer realm. Why were the outcomes different? Faith versus sorrow, well, what was the input? How were they approaching the moment of question? Okay. Well, the jailer approached with wonder. He approached with wonder at men preserved by divine power. We would think of this as fear of the Lord. We would think of this as positive volition at the point of God consciousness. Because something awesome was going on and this jailer wanted to know what it was. But the rich young ruler approached with a confidence of a man preserved by human effort. No fear of the Lord in that. Let's look at these verses. In Acts 16, what what leads up to the question of, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Well, um, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. You know, just because you're in prison doesn't mean the word of God's in prison. You got a you got a missionary mi- uh, ministry there, like the man I visited on Monday. Um, there's there's Bible class to teach. There's there's work to be done. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were unfastened. That's not normal, <laughs> okay? And when the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. The uh, Roman penalty for allowing a prisoner to escape was uh, crucifixion or worse. And this, uh, he's better just falling on his sword so that uh, he doesn't have to answer for that, even the, the dishonor to his family. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, "Do not harm yourself, for we are all here." You know how shocking that is. <laughs> You don't expect to hear any voices. They're all gone. They've escaped. They've fled. And then here's a, a voice of grace saying, "Don't do that. We're we're all right. We're here." Immediately, wonder, amazement, fear at men preserved by divine power. I think this man's wonder at the voice of Paul coming from out of that cell was was no less than. Uh, Moses' wonder at a burning bush, right? And a voice coming out of a donkey. How about Balaam's wonder at his donkey talking to him? Or are there other opportunities there which is, wait a minute, what's happening here? And the voice that came out of the jail cell, wait a minute, they're still in there? All of them? Okay. Okay. Wonder And so what does he do? He called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. This is an act of homage. This is an act of worship. This is a, a, a man that knows he's in the presence of divine power. Now, you could say he's wrong for worshiping Paul and Silas. I don't think he's doing that, but he's still falling down before the recognition of divine power. And after he brought them out, he said, sirs, so what must I do to be saved? So there's a, an entirely different approach, see. So is it any wonder that he went into the question with an attitude of the fear of the Lord? And when he heard the gospel message, his heart was prepared to respond. This is exactly why no one comes to me except the Father who sent me draws him. This is exactly why the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. This is all of the work in in common grace and preparation grace where God is grabbing a hold of that sinner, humbling them, convicting them, working in them, preparing them so that when they approach the gospel message, it's with wonder. It's in readiness to hear a message that's preached. That's why you and I are commanded to give an answer not to every human being on the planet but to those who ask. That's why we are expected to have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We're not constantly gospelizing everybody but we're prepared for when it becomes clear that this is an open door. Here is somebody that's being prepared. Here's somebody that's under conviction. Here's somebody that's humble. Here's somebody that wants to know. Here's somebody that's just pulling his hair out, saying, God, all I want to know is the truth. Okay? Right? All I want to know is the truth. What do I got to do? What's what's necessary? Now, that is not how the rich young ruler was approaching him. He was approaching him uh, with the confidence of a man preserved by human effort. All the confidence of a man that has kept the law from his youth. Probably from the point of his... Uh, Bar Mitzvah or whatever, he's he's now accountable. He's a son of the covenant. He's a son of the law, and uh, so he is uh, living by that standard. And in his book, he's done pretty well. In fact, he's perfect. And no matter how perfect he's convinced himself that he is, there's still some nagging part of his mind that wonders, what else can I do? How else can I demonstrate how awesome I am? <laughs> right? Give me another commandment I can keep. Give me something else I can do. Another opportunity to shine even higher until Jesus pops his bubble. Okay? Understand, all such confidence is shaky. All such confidence is shaky. And maybe it's in the dark of the night, maybe it's in the privacy of his own soul, maybe it's when no one's looking and no one's around and they're just weeping in their own misery. Say like the, the diaries they found after Madeleine Murray O'Hare died. And all of the sorrow and all of the grief and all of the anguish and all of the doubts and all of the questions that she wrote in her diary. But you would never know that publicly because she was so militant as in her atheism. So militant in her opposition to Christianity and truth. And yet, in her diaries, we understand how shaky <laughs> such self-confidence is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just the guilt alone when when the light flashes forth and Paul's thrown off his donkey and he's blinded and he says, who are you, Lord? Who are you? Give me the name. He's just he's, He knows. There's that part of him that knows. Wait a minute. I think that's amazing. I'm out of time. I'm actually a minute long. Um, look up those verses. We'll come back to this next week. Luke 18 verses 9 and 14. We were there not too long ago. Here's the the man was so full of himself, the Pharisee versus the tax collector who wouldn't even lift his eyes up into heaven. And uh, it was the man that was full of himself, and he wasn't, he wasn't the one that went home justified. We'll come back to that again. Thank you, Father, for your truth, for your faithfulness for this uh, episode. We've got a good jump on it, Father. There's more to study, more to understand. And how are we going to make our application, Father? When are we going to respond evangelistically? When are we going to respond legalistically? When are we going to uh, answer a fool according to his folly? And when are we not going to answer a fool according to his folly? Father, uh, those verses are back to back and we need to understand when we apply the one and when we apply the other. So, Father, uh, continue to open our eyes to truth. Continue to equip us. Father, there's a lot of folks out there asking questions and sometimes they're asking the right questions. But oftentimes they're asking uh, for the wrong reasons. And Father, give us uh, discernment to, uh, to have the grace that our speech can be seasoned with salt. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.